1: I think first things first, we have to establish where we are. Where, where are you this week?
2: I'm in Bologna. I'm in a very nice Italian oh, hotel room. I'm in Bologna for the Davis Cup uh, in Italy. And um, yeah, it's been good. Having a great time. So who have you got in Bologna? We have Italy. Uh, we have Canada, <laughs> Sweden. Um, and Chile. Canada, Sweden, Chile, and Italy, and I tell you what, it's been really competitive. Like yeah. it, it's it's great. I mean, we've been blown away. Canada, they're doing unbelievably well. Um, they upset Italy on the first day, uh, which was a really cool atmosphere, uh, and they just keep on rolling. So on paper, they're not the strongest, but they're they're
1: playing like it. So um, yeah, it's cool. It's good fun. It's true, isn't it? Tennis never stops, does it? It it never. I mean. One tournament rolls into the next, and then there's <laughs> there's another, and then it it, it really is a, a treadmill of events that that doesn't let up. It is, and we're feeling that at Davis Cup, um,
2: I think in terms okay. of the players that are not here. Yeah. So Alcaraz not playing for Spain, and um, interesting Djokovic making comments about that, saying, "Yeah, I expected him to be here," um, which is uh, which is fascinating. Um, I suppose Djokovic is like, come on, I'm 36, I'm here. Obviously, it's very close to the US Open. It's right after the US Open. So it is understandable that if you've been to the final or, or something like that, or, or like Carlos, that it's um, it's obviously a very tight turnaround. Uh, Djokovic managed to go home and do some celebrations in Serbia and then he's gone over to Valencia. Uh, didn't play in the first tie, because you play three ties through the week. So that's also another option is just to go, and then play when when you're able, which is I think what what Novak's going to do. But um, yes, it uh, yeah that, I thought that was quite interesting because um, Alcaraz isn't here or he's not in Valencia. And for us, we've lost Yannick Sinner to tiredness. Mm. Um, and again, um, for Sinner, and I don't know I don't know what's going on. I think it was extreme tiredness, but he did lose in the l- round of 16 at the US Open. That was a good like 10 days ago. Um, but he's not come at all. Um, like we have, so for the Canadian team, we've got Denis Shapovalov, um, and he's a bit injured, but he's here. You know, right. he's okay. he's here,
1: and he will be ready to play if he wasn't a bit hurt. But he is. It's a hard one, isn't it? Because you've got you've got the pull of your country, and everyone's saying, "Well, hang on a second, this is your country, so so you should be here, and and you want to be there." And Carlos Alcaraz, I mean, you know, is he is he a wee bit injured? We saw the strapping on the thigh, the movement didn't seem as perfect as it normally is. Maybe he needs this time to recover, but then people feel he's letting down his country. But it, there is, oh, I could say there's just not enough time to do everything, but there are some players who are doing everything. And maybe for Djokovic, look, it, it's easier when you've when you've, when you've you've won your 24th and you, you're full of that adrenaline and it's great to turn up and go round and everything's, I don't know, it just, everyone is different. Everyone is different. I think the problem is the expectation is the same yeah but we've got the the
2: same on the women's side as well uh with Guadalajara I mean that's taken a massive hit um you know, oh, barely wow any of the top yeah players are playing <laughs> i mean it's a it's a one thousand event, and barely anybody's playing really in in the top eight so that's an amazing opportunity if you're a top twenty tennis player you could genuinely get your hands on a one thousand title here um but still it's um maybe it's just the week of the year that it's just the worst possible week of the year to to hold this um, sort of event and the same for Guadalajara. I mean, I, yeah, I don't know. It's it's difficult because everybody wants uh, wants to try and work in and wrestling. And look, you have to make choices. Um, you absolutely have to make choices as to where you play. You can't do it all. Um, but the trouble is, and I think from the WTA and the ATP and the ITF for Davis Cup, from their perspective, sometimes the choices are more to do with sponsors. So, So a lot of the time... So yeah. I'm not I'm not talking about any specific player. I've got no idea of the ins and outs. But say you've got Guadalajara, which is a 1,000 event that the WTA want you to play, and then the week after is a smaller event, a 250 or a 500, that is sponsored by your main sponsor. Say your main sponsor is Porsche. You after you have to go and play that tournament. It's sort of in your contract. Sometimes it is in your contract. You're expected to go and play the Porsche sponsored event and that's where you might see these choices coming in and and players going okay well I have to do that and this and that so that means I have to miss this one whereas if you're the WTA or the ATP or the ITF the ITF are going well surely Davis Cup is one of the first things you put into your schedule and surely Guadalajara as a 1000 is going to be top priority and then everything else is going to follow but there's other things that that go on as well and then of course you know look, people are getting quite tired at this part of the season like of course it's uh it's completely understandable I think that the schedule is too long it's too busy it's it's too difficult for for players to maintain and what when we've seen a shift really haven't we I think I especially over the last five years of players just playing less and less we saw Serena doing it a lot we saw Federer doing it a lot and I think oh then we saw Osaka doing it And I think that's just sort of the the, the way that it's going
1: is people just do want to play less and have longer careers. If someone was going to offer me a Porsche, I'd turn up at the event, however tired (laughs) I was. (laughs) What if you've already got one? I'll have another one. Um, (laughs) I'd be there. And you've got to remember, so Iga Shontek played Warsaw she normally wouldn't play it, but she's not not going to yeah, play Warsaw. Exactly. And then she gets to the US Open and she's like, I'm really tired. And, and, and you kind of look at the schedule. What could she have missed? Well, again, she's going to want to do a thousand. She's not not going to do Warsaw. And then unfortunately, it means and we saw this last year, the Billie Jean King Cup finals, the turnaround from the WTA finals, to the Billie Jean King Cup finals. Iga Shontek again, just, you know, it's not... It's not good for me physically to to be making that change and and it's it's the back end of the season, so as you say that the bodies are breaking down, maybe the minds are breaking down as well a bit, and there's just is a lot to fit in, and as you say, there are commitments and it's it's tough because everyone wants a piece of you, you know, even the labor cup's coming up soon, and that's got a i don't know team wise that's got a kind of different look to it, some say it's not as strong, it's not because there's just there's just so much to fit in and yeah, look, there are events you want to play because maybe it's a sponsor or you get paid an appearance fee or it's your home event. But you have to look after. I think more and more they're realising that you've got to look after yourself physically and mentally.
2: Yeah, um, I, I and I do totally agree with that. But then I do think the arguments from the WTA, ATP and um, ITF are that you could do that just with their schedules if you didn't take into consideration the sponsors and the other stuff. Uh, around it, then that that their the schedules would be much more manageable. Um, but yet, yeah, exactly what you just said there, Felix Ogier seen he's not playing Davis Cup because, and I, th- I believe his official reason is because he's playing Labor Cup and he wants to go and prepare Labor Cups in Vancouver. It's obviously a big deal for him being Canadian, um, and he's and he decided to do that. Canada are here is defending champions. They've brought the trophy to Bologna. We've got it here, <laughs> courtside, glistening. Love it, and um, you know. Uh, And I mean, great for him that his team have got on with it without him and have played out of their minds. So, um, yeah, but look, scheduling things are really difficult. You've got agents saying you need to do this. You've got the tours saying, well, you know, we need to be able to, you know, because there's always the argument about prize money, right? Um, you know, in terms of getting the prize money that comes from the sponsors of the events and you can only get big sponsors of the events if you can guarantee them big players. That's that's how it works. So You need to get the big players to commit and you need to be able to tell your sponsors a couple of months in advance. We have got Shiontech coming. We have got Novak coming. We have got they've confirmed they're, they're here. They're coming and and then they'll, you'll get more money and then that's going to pay for the prize money. And so. It's, it's, all, it's, it's an ecosystem. Everything feeds off each other. It all goes
1: round and round um, and everybody's got different interests and and again we come back to the fact that individual contractors like you and I we're freelance and we were talking before we started the pod because we're always chatting i mean if if we actually pressed record for the moment we called each other it would be about 2 hours long but we were talking about the work and we're taking lots of work and we've got to find this balance and got to sort out the childcare and doing this and that but but we're freelance so we are we are taking the work because the work can stop i know that's sort of different well i guess the equivalent for a tennis player is they get injured And then it stops. And so you've got to it is quite hard to find the balance, but I don't blame them for if there's an event where there's an appearance fee or they're going to get this or that. I I sort of because they're they're, you're your own business, right? You're you are your own business. You're making your money. You're generating things. It's so it's I think it's a tough one. And yes, the the tours would argue and I know it's, it's coming into force that there'll be a wage for a certain level of player that they can live and. Um, live off that, but at the same time, if there are opportunities for them to capitalise on what they're doing and who they are, I guess, I guess, look, we've talked about this with Raducanu in the past, no one can blame her for suddenly doing everything that came along, not everything, a lot of things after the US Open win, because you don't know how long something like that's going to last, and you want to make the most of it, but um, yeah, I think, look, we could discuss this I don't know, every few weeks on the pod because it's not going to change, is it? The the calendar's not going to shrink down and nor are the demands on the players. No, uh, yeah, exactly. And I think, I mean, what, in in tennis, it's
2: quite unique as well, I think, in comparison to other sports. I mean, they make, what, like 80, 90% of their money from sponsors, from endorsement deals. You know, prize money is such a small part of it. Unless you were Ash Barty and you got the you got the biggest year of all years because she got what, the 4.6 <laughs> 4. million from Shenzhen yeah. and the slams and the, I mean, she. I think she earned over $10 million in prize money alone that year. You don't need endorsements when you're earning that sort of cash. But yeah, for the most part, um, everybody's earning the, the majority from endorsements. So you can understand why they go, well, hang on a minute. This is how I'm earning my money. And if they want me to go there, I'm going to go there. Right. Um, but yeah, so it's, it's a, it's a delicate balance.
1: Yeah, yeah. How is your, we've got so much to talk about. We are going to talk a lot about Simona Halep and what's coming up, but how was your, we haven't spoken about the US Open. A lot of people have probably forgotten about it. It feels like, I think I'm, my friend told me that jet lag, you're allowed to be jet lagged. I think it's one hour a day. So, so New York's five hours. So that I'm allowed to be jet lagged for five days. Basically after five days I can't tell people I'm jet lagged. <laughs> I think you could do what you want. <laughs> really? <laughs> that's just I think after five days that's just kind of old age and sort yourself out. But I'm allowed to say, Oh, you yeah, know, I'm really jet lagged for like five days. But it it already feels a long time ago, but what a what a special tournament for, for a number of reasons. For for me it was working for Sky Sports for the first time. That was amazing. In the studio the first week with Martina and Tim and then on site, people were amazing. Tournament was amazing. It was very hot and sweaty though. Um, But then to have Coco Goff, it just felt on that year, 50 years of the WTA forming, 50 years of equal pay and then Coco Goff sort of coming through and then Djokovic with his 24. It just, I don't know, loved it. I don't know. I I know it it was different tournament-wise for you, but what were... I don't know what were your takeaways. What did you like? What did you not like? Yeah, I thought it was great. I mean, it was. I mean,
2: Coco winning was just such Amazing. a moment, wasn't it? It was yeah. so so cool. Um, and she, oh yeah, she was just brilliant all the way through the tournament. And uh, uh yeah, I mean, it, it just what a stretch of time for her. The U.S. Open Series overall winning in Washington, <laughs> um, winning in. Cincy and then um and then of course winning the US Open i mean just just absolutely remarkable she really she figured it out that's the thing and and, and i think pe- yeah. people underestimate how for a lot of these players it's not about effort it's not about the gym you know we, obviously you've done all of that um it's not about like if you're not playing well or if you're losing on court it's not about trying harder it's about working it out and i think that you know the combination with her and her new team has definitely helped that and uh, understanding how to win when uh, you know she wasn't playing well has obviously been a big thing it's a big thing of Brad Gilberts of course winning ugly that's his uh, that's his whole thing and it works it's worked again because uh, and I'm not putting all of the credit on Brad whatsoever because Coco had has done uh, you know all of the work she's done the 19 years of work to get to this point of course she has so she's put herself in this position but the final final tuning I think for her was a a understanding that you're not going to play your best tennis every day I don't think she played her best tennis in a lot of those matches through the tournament you know it was pretty patchy she was having to work things out she was struggling she was looking panicked a lot she was concerned and but she just did um and, uh, you know, she just did enough to win and there was some winning ugly for her through that tournament. And, uh, yeah, so I thought it was, uh, yeah, it was, it was amazing, amazing to see, uh, to see her, her lift the trophy. I mean, I, I don't know. I, 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 I don't know whether I did expect it or not. I mean, obviously I didn't pick her as my winner, winner, but, you know, I think it's been for a while that you wouldn't be surprised if she was lifting a Grand Slam title. It
1: felt like it was coming. Yeah, it felt like, well, especially, as you say, with the, the North American Hardcourt series season that she had had. You know, she was building up with First Washington and she gets a 500, she gets a Masters. It, it felt like it was building and it felt like for the first time when we were talking about, I remember, I think Martina and Tim, they both went for Goff to win. It, it felt for the first time she wasn't one of the, oh, I think she'll be there and thereabouts. She was people's firm favourite. Not everyone's because, like, you know, I, I you went Rebecca in her, did you? Or did I make that I up? I think so. Yeah. yeah I, so. I went Sabalenka. A lot of people would have gone Shiontek. But I think for the first time, a lot of people were actually saying, no, I think Goff is going to win. And I think that's that's partly for that momentum that she was building up. when you think she lost first round at Wimbledon and that momentum that she has built since then. And what I love about Goff is, yeah, you know, there was the winning ugly and there was the fighting through. And I love the way she was speaking up for herself again. you know, Laura Sigermund, who, my God, does she take time. Um, but Goff, you know, got to the <laughs> point. And for so long in that match, Gilbert was saying, say something and go up to the chair. And, and Goff did it at her own time to the point where she finally snapped. And I like the fact she was speaking up for herself. But I like the fact with Goff that, she's still she's still 19 we have to say the age again cuz so young but she takes responsibility and she figures things out and she makes good decisions and i'm not saying she's making them on her own but you know suddenly from eastbourne onwards you know the parents like the parents weren't in eastbourne and i know they have other children to look after and split their time with but you know some parents never leave the box never relinquish control never step aside can cause problems I like the fact they seem to be a really mature family and they knew it was time for a different voice and maybe dad to step aside a little bit and and mum and dad didn't need to be there every tournament and she's still so young so they could have been justified in being there and I like that. I like the fact her parents seem lovely but I like the fact they weren't always there. It felt like she was taking control and she could be at a tournament on her own and she could get to know... Um, Per Reba, her new coach, and then they got the call. I think Brad Gilbert, he was speaking to us in Sky Sports and he said it was during Wimbledon that a call was made saying, Do you fancy working with Coco Golf? And and he took the call and off we went. But I, I for me, I like she's always been so mature. I mean, her speech, oh my word, her her winner speech was just like, Yes, of course. Just amazing. But I like the fact she she's takes responsibility. She still seems young and will have fun. But she takes responsibility and she learns and she grows and I don't know, all the ingredients are there, it feels. Do you know what I mean? From Do you remember? I remember us talking years ago when she first popped up and she was at the US Open. And I remember us talking, I think she was on Louis Armstrong and the people in her box, it was about 10 rows deep. I remember having this conversation with you and I said, I couldn't believe that for someone so young, there were 10 rows of people. And we couldn't name any of them aside from mum and dad and coach and someone else. And that's whittled down. You know, it's, I just, I she just seems to be doing everything the right way.
2: Yeah, it's just being more professional, isn't it? I mean, yeah. in terms of you know, cutting the people out of the box that she doesn't need there, you know, because when you first do it, you're just really excited and everybody wants to come and you want everyone to be there. <laughs> so you're just trying to get as many tickets as possible. Um, and then, you know, when it becomes normal, because you're playing at the US Open every year and... Uh, then you are able to just say, no, not this year. You know, I'm just going to do it this way. I mean, for me, the turning point was beating Siontek in Cincy. Yeah, I think huge. that was huge. She'd, she'd never got a set off her because as much as she was playing better, that really gave her the belief. You never want a set off her before in, I think, seven tries. and um, And then she beats her. And she played really well to do it. And I think that really made her see, okay, I can beat anyone on any day like I absolutely like I think that just really gave her that that belief the way she talked about it I think that was a big moment of course she was doing a lot of winning and feeling good but I think you know look she didn't have to play Shiontek in the end but if she had played Shiontek I think she would have had a great chance
1: because we had the trial of the women using the men's balls men women playing yes. with men's balls quite literally um and the WTA had already said we'd never use the men's balls at US Open to protect shoulders to protect injuries they came into play and we had a few players like Von Drusseva getting a lot of shoulder arm pains and Jabir talking about how it's a lot harder and what was your kind of take away from... Do you think it was a success? Do you think it should continue? Or do you think the WTA are right to try and protect their players by, as I say, using the, the softer <clears throat> ones, the ones that use on the clay rather than the hard courts? Uh, look, I don't I don't really
2: know, to be honest. I don't... um Look, it's always going to suit some players and not others. And there's going to be some players like, say, Von Drusevert and Shabur, that sort of variety game. I think... Um, you know, we're not happy about the heavier balls um, because I think it's going to be harder when you're playing against those power players, uh, which is what I was saying before the tournament. But they play with even heavier balls than this elsewhere. Like, okay, I mean, Wimbledon has the heaviest balls. The Slazenger balls are the the heaviest on on tour. But I I guess you argue that the rallies are shorter, so they're not going to have as much wear and tear. Um, But, yeah, I, I mean, I think all in all it was fine, right? I mean, it's not like everybody was they weren't dropping like flies who had a couple of grumbles and and some injuries, but who's to say they would have have picked up those injuries without the, um, the, the heavy balls. Um, So yeah, like for me, it seemed like it
1: was just sort of fine, really, I guess. And I'm really, I'm happy that Irina Sabalenka is world number one. I think for everything she's done, she deserves to, I know it's not how she would have wanted it. She came and spoke to us on set and, and she sort of said, it's not how I wanted to become number one. And she said, you know, I'm going to wait for the tournament to finish and I'm going to think about it. But now, but she's done enough to deserve to be there. But I guess it's a little bit like Svantec when she took over from Ash Barty, She then proved that she should be there and she stayed there. I guess for Sabalenka now, who's having such a good year, it's about running with it and and how she deals with being the world number one.
2: Yeah, and I think she will. I think she'll be absolutely fine because I mean, she might not stay as the world number one because I think it's very competitive. You're right at the top. Yeah. You know, it doesn't feel like, you know, she's not dominating like Shontek did. Um, I mean, she's obviously playing ridiculously consistently for such a powerful player, um, which is a very dangerous combination. But um, I just think she's sort of been waiting for it for such a long time. You know, she's been knocking on the door pretty much for the whole of Shontek's range. She's not necessarily just sat at number two, but you've, she's felt like somebody who's you know you know there was quite a gap for a a while but um yeah I mean particularly this whole year she's been the best player in the world right that's why she's number one like she just has been so I think it's been quite a while and I I don't think she's gonna be um I don't think she's gonna be too spooked by it at all and look she got the number one ranking official well not officially unofficially in the middle of the tournament and she was still fine she got on
1: with it and she played and so I don't think it's gonna bother her at all something else that stood out um From the women was Maria Sakkari, another early defeat, a tearful press conference. Then saying maybe it's time to step away from tennis, doesn't really get it, etc., etc. And then pops up with it is it San Diego? And she said she didn't realise that when she was talking it would be translated and everyone would hear it, and all the messages and the love she's got has been incredible, and she's going to carry on. But. What do you do when you're a player in this kind of funk? And, you know, for some, I guess they change the whole team. Because I find it so hard in any sport, I guess. But it's in the public eye, isn't it? You're playing out to get the wins. She's got to do out there in public. She's got to I just, Your sort of heart goes out to her. But to get back to it, she's got to keep just grinding it out. I mean, what does she do? Does she change everything up? Does she step away? I mean, it's it's really sad to see. Well, you've got three choices. You make a significant change
2: in what you're doing. Um, you step away, have a break, or you just work through it. And you keep going and you keep going and you, and it will turn around at some point. Um, but that's that can be pretty, pretty demoralising, I have to say, for for a, a long period of time. Um, yeah, I mean, and the thing is, is with changing your team. So it's interesting because you can look at Sabalenka, where at the end of last year, her coach said there's just nothing more I can give you. Like it's not working. Like I can't, we're trying to get you to a grand slam winning level. And I just, I can't, Um, you know, we've worked together for years and it's not happening. And she said, no, it's not you. It's me. So she didn't change her team, but what she did change was her perspective on everything. She said, right, I've got to sort out my serve. She's got a biomechanic. And she, she changed a lot about her approach. She said, right, I've had enough. I'm going to sort it out. And it worked right. She won the Australian open a month into the, the new season you could change your team. Um, And that, look, that isn't necessarily, like, Savalenka could have done that. And that's not necessarily a slight on the team. That's not saying that the coach is not doing a good job because just sometimes as a player, you just need something external to sort of lift you out. It's the same for anybody. If you're in like a real funk, you're in a proper bad mood for a little bit of a while you're in a stump sometimes you could just have something external can come along and it can really lift you you up or or you could change your environment you could say right I want to be around these people or whatever and you can you can do things so Mm -hmm. you know as I say it's not to necessarily say that Zachary's coach isn't doing a good job but it just a refresh might be the best way for her to start again so I don't know but maybe she wants to have a break before doing that I mean we're approaching the end of the season you know maybe she just wants to say now like like let's just call it for the end of the season and and we'll see i don't know we've seen lots of players do that before and it's been fine so um but yeah it's not it's not nice to see when when you know players are getting upset but um i hope everything's all right in herself and it's just yeah. she can't get her game going everything else is fine
1: yeah no that's key um so novak Djokovic, 24 grand slam titles the jackets were ready the jackets were whipped out. Everyone had the twenty-four on, and then recently, and I actually, I heard this. I heard this in New York, but it were, that he was going to part ways with his manager, his two managers, and I also heard there might be a coaching change brewing as well. But that's, I mean, I, I don't know the exact reasons behind it. I mean, it look being an agent, a manager for a top player, it's going to be stressful. It's going to be very stressful. So I don't know the reason behind it, but it seems as though, you know, he hits 24 and he could be once again making some major changes.
2: Well, he's just going to keep going, isn't he? It's, um, it's <laughs> phenomenal. Yep, he's got, a, he's got plenty of life in him yet, unfortunately, for everyone else. What was it Daniel Medvedev said? Why are you still here? Um, I think, was that in his speech? Um, but yeah, I mean, yeah, it'd be fascinating to see him um, change up the team again. But who knows what that reason is you never know it could be um members of his team saying right okay had enough now we've got you to 24 job done I don't want to be on the road there's all different different factors that could could go into it it is a slick machine the Djokovic enterprise is oh. it's slick and it's firing and um, I mean he's absolutely sensational I mean it was a phenomenal run
1: and I was really happy for Daniel Medvedev. I know he said before the tournament, I want people to talk about me. Why are people not talking about me? We should have been talking about him more because he has the record over the last few years for wins on hard courts. He's won the US Open before, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But I think we were so lost, so carried away, so in love with this djokovic alcaraz rivalry. And, you know, since he did nothing to dampen that, we wanted more of it. And I think it just allowed Medvedev to kind of go about his business. You know, I remember in the ahead of the meeting with Alcaraz and, and I don't know fitness-wise exactly where Alcaraz was, but talking about the return to serve position. Well, I think we spent about 20 minutes saying he can't win if he stands at the back of the court against someone who's got the best touch in the game. He can't do it. But boy, is that man stubborn. He said, I can do it. This is how I play and I'm going to win by doing it.
2: I, I don't know. I feel like we do talk about him. I was saying in the pod last time that, you know, you've got Djokovic and Alcaraz and there's a little gap and there's Medvedev and I, I think that I still think that's fair enough I just based on the results and based on the level of tennis that we've seen and then there's another big gap between Medvedev and the rest yeah. of the field so like you know he is I think he's closer to the top two than he is to the rest of the field so like you feel like the three of them are sort of further away but you know I don't I don't I mean look I know he beat Carlos but um, in, yeah, in terms of the results and, and the performances we're seeing, that's just sort of my, my view on it. But um, yeah, maybe he'll become the Djokovic figure of the uh, the party pooper of the the rivalry, right? It was, that, was, that was how it went. Everybody wanted the Federer and Adal final. Yeah. And here comes Djokovic to spoil the party. And everybody buying the final tickets and all the organizers wanting the Federer and Adal final. And they kept getting <laughs> Djokovic. And, um, you know, it was, it was difficult for people.
1: So U.S. Open uh, loved it, enjoyed it. Feels like a long time ago now. And then what was it? A matter of days, minutes. As I say, I'm a bit blurry on the days this week. We get the news about Simona Halep. Now, Simona Halep has been very vocal in recent months, saying, "I want a resolution. I want to know what's going on. I want some answers." Well, there has been. Let's not call it a resolution because we know she's going to appeal to cast the Court of Arbitration for Sport, but we've had we've had an update on the hallop situation it came with a four year suspension and and wonderfully you have read through the entire how long did it take you the entirety of the ruling it was 126 pages I
2: mean, about 2 hours maybe um That's not too a bad. bit under
1: a bit, bit under 2 hours so and was um, it was it put out in a way that was easy to digest and understand? Because sometimes those documents, when they've got all these sort of clause this and figure this and that, can get a little bit kind of oh. Uh, how how was it in terms of reading through it?
2: No, it was. It it genuinely was. It wasn't really filled with. With jargon and stuff yeah. I mean the beginning section was much more about the timelines of things I mean halep has been very vocal about the delays and stuff and look there have been delays um, but it just sets out why those delays have happened and it's all very reasonable and and that sort of thing so um yeah so the the, the first part wasn't really even getting into the, the case or the first thirty pages or so was much more about this is how it's all sort of transpired in, in the times um, but yeah it was it was written very well I thought it was pretty easy to understand i don't have any expertise in this of course um and uh yeah it gives a, a good overview i don't you know i don't think it gives you um a sense of what happened as in you know what led up to uh the positive tests but i think it gives you a good overview as to the way forward for Halap now Um, I think it's very difficult for me to sit here and say like if you were to say did she dope I don't don't have an answer for you
1: no but if I can ask for people listening and there might be some that just join us and like tennis but don't follow it like we do so if you could break it down into what she was accused of right what led to this and and what your takeaways are from what you read. So the starting point was she had a
2: positive urine sample at the US Open last year, um, so a full year ago, uh, and it was positive for Roxadustat, which is a, a very performance-enhancing drug if used to in that way. Um, increases your blood flow and your oxygen levels and that sort of thing. I mean, it's been compared to sort of like an EPO. Um, people might have heard of that because of Lance Armstrong. Mm-hmm. Um, so that that's that. It is not a naturally occurring uh chemical in your body so as in any form of it in you is abnormal it just it shouldn't it shouldn't be there it's obviously on the ban list and and that's that it's not like sometimes you know there's things about testosterone and like obviously yeah. everybody's yeah. body makes a certain amount and it's about levels this is like if it's there that's bad um and so she had a, a positive uh urine sample at the us open and was uh informed Uh, of her immediate suspension which of course she has denied strenuously um, right from the beginning then uh, she came out and was talking about delays it was months later it was actually early this year she was talking about delays to the to the hearing and that her hearing had been delayed again, I think it was it was due to be in March, and it had been pushed back. but that was because new evidence had come to light, and it was a new allegation because there were abnormalities in her blood passport, and her blood passport had been investigated separately without knowledge of the urine sample because it's it's different experts doing it not you know it 's not like one place does it all the blood passports are run by a certain team. And the urine samples, others, and this team had been investigating her for months because of an abnormal blood result, which um, again had come at the U.S. Open in September. So there were actually two sort of separate investigations going on uh, into doping violations with different evidence. So she essentially has, um, yeah, so, so that yeah, so there's there's, there's two uh, uh, I
1: suppose allegations that she needs to defend herself against. And the people who were looking into this, I'm right in thinking that they didn't know who she was or what sport she did. So they weren't thinking, right, this is a tennis player and they do this. It's just they're just analysing the samples of what's in front of them. Is that right?
2: Yes. So they they
1: don't have any idea to begin with. And what they're saying is, as you said, it's not a naturally occurring substance. And what you're saying is the period of time or what was the period of time they were looking at or believe it was in her system
2: for? Well, so the, the urine sample was just in September and the it got flat and for the blood passport it got flagged in, in September. And the blood passport is just that you consistently have your blood taken and they can see the markers of your blood and then they can see if it's been tampered with because, and, and sure, it might happen for physiological reasons. You could have an operation, you could become anemic. There's all these sorts of things that could happen but then that's to investigate and to find out if there is any sort of reasonable explanation for it. Um, but <clears throat> once that, blood um had been flagged. they then looked back at other results and they also saw that in March it was abnormal, not necessarily strong enough to have flagged that that it it was um something that needed to be investigated and potential doping. but when you put the two together, it followed a pattern, and the ITIA's allegation is that she started doping in march 2022 that she repetitively and systematically doped until september 2022 and those numbers had increased all the way through um and that is their allegation um uh, and and with all of the evidence they have that's the conclusion they came to now the tribunal found the the end result was that the tribunal agreed that She had doped in September 2022, um, but they couldn't be sure of March because there weren't any tests in between that. If there was like another test, there was another blood test, but it had um, it was invalid. So if there had been another one in July and that had followed the trend, then she they would have um, I imagine they probably could have said, yes, she had been doping that entire time. So at the moment, um, the only thing that has, I suppose, from their perspective, been proven is that she was doping in September,
1: and from saying things on on social media for people who've also read it, and having a conversation with you, it, it sounds like that um, Sven Halper's defence hasn't necessarily helped her in terms of the defence it has put up for why this might have been in her system. Well, it's just being dismissed,
2: really. That's the thing is that um so her defence is that um there she was ta- she started taking a new supplement in uh in august that was contaminated with roxadustat now she didn't declare this on her um on her form that she does when she does her anti-doping when she does her drugs test you have to write down everything that you're taking she didn't declare it which is a bit sloppy um and then after the positive urine sample she had an interview in october uh, with the ITIA, um, didn't talk about a new supplement at all. Obviously, she's putting out her defence, didn't talk about it, didn't mention it. Um, so it was just news to them later on when Hallop's team came and said um, she was taking this supplement uh, and we've tested it and it is contaminated with roxidustat. Um, Hallop said she forgot um, about it, um, which, uh, I mean, look, it's a high-pressure situation, so you can... I mean, I'm sure you know, you're not necessarily gonna be thinking clearly. But anyway, it was tested for rocks rocks of dust at um and uh, and it was contaminated. That's from Halep's team. So then the ITIA said, Cool, let our experts test it. They tested it, didn't find any rocks of dust at so that was quite a big clash between both sides, is that one was saying we don't find any contamination and the other was saying there was. Um in the end the tribunal sided with HALEP because the expert for the ITA ITIA couldn't um, offer any explanation as to why there would be a false positive. It just it, there were very different testing methods, and you know, couldn't really say why this had happened. So they said, "Right, let's just take HALEP's team. You know, these are all professionals. There is no you know question mark over that. Um, we'll take those numbers and we'll go with it." The, then the problem is that the numbers that have been found in the drugs in the supplements, sorry, were so tiny that it couldn't possibly have caused the amount that um, was found in the urine sample. Well, that's the ITIA's argument. That's their expert's opinion. And um, HALEP's team dispute that. So basically, the ITIA have essentially dismissed that as evidence because they've said, well, that's not possible. So you must have had it from somewhere else. Um, and HALEP's team are saying, you know, that they, dis- they fundamentally disagree with that. And they say it is possible. And, and
1: that's that. It's, wow, it's, uh, it's a difficult position for Simona Halep. It's, it's interesting that on social media, a lot of um, people who have Halep fan accounts who cover Romanian tennis are, are coming to the conclusion that, you know, this did happen. And as you say, you can't say how it happened or, or why it happened, but there is obviously clear evidence that it was in her system, in her blood. And it, you know on social media, I, I've even seen one account saying that they're probably going to shut down their account because they believe this did happen for whatever reason knowingly or not. and this will then be a four year suspension that's upheld and then people looking back on past results one of those the wimbledon win in 2019 but but there's nothing to say I think all at of that, that time is a bit it was happening. I think all of that is
2: a bit silly really like as in the accusation the allegations which have been upheld are yep. are just uh, yeah, you know, well the accusations were from March to September, but the only thing that's been upheld has been September. So there's there's I don't yep. think there's any question mark about any of her results before twenty twenty two. And I think that's a bit silly um to think. Um so I I was just talking about the um the urine sample of the Roxadust The other part is the blood passport where there just isn't really much defence because for the for the blood passport, um yeah, for for the blood passport it's it's like it's it, It just it shows that your blood is different, right? It just it shows it's to a significant level, and you know the ITIA experts uh, and the independent experts that were were working on this were were basically like, you know, unless you've become anemic or something's happened, then there's no really really a, a reason for this. And then when you put that together with the positive urine sample, and from their perspective there's no valid explanation for that either because the contamination doesn't cut it you put it all together and it's not a good looking picture so from there that's why they've come to the conclusion that it was repetitive and systematic um uh, uh doping but um you know for Halep her defense on the blood passport really um hinged on well it, the numbers were still in a normal range for a woman between the age of 25 and 35 so if you take an average woman um and and really the itia's response was yeah, but that's the point of the blood passport is that we don't compare you to random people we compare you to you and your blood and your footprint and we've got your blood data data from 2013 to now and you need to explain this um and there just hasn't really been been a uh, a strong enough explanation. So there are as I say, there are two things she needs to defend against. There's one that they just dispute that the contamination couldn't possibly cause that that range. And it does get really technical to do with numbers and readings and all this sort of stuff. But I think that's the general gist of it. And then the other is the blood passport, (laughs) which their argument is you're not allowing for these variations. Whereas the ITIA and the experts that run the blood passport program strenuously, strenuously say we absolutely allow for all of these variations. That is, it's all calculated, and this is such a big outlier.
1: And so that—that that is basically it, really myself and our listeners appreciate you going through every page of that document and I'm, I'm going to go through every page of that document once I stop using the excuse of jet lag and I'm also starting work on the Rugby World Cup I've completely switched sports <laughs> for a few weeks so I've got to get my head around that but I am going to sit down and read it and as far as we know uh, Smona Hallett will be taking it to the well the last place the Court of Arbitration for Sport but as things stand that's four years that's 36 that is that is that really unless unless there's any change but um no thank you thank you for reading through that you sent me some wonderful voice notes going through it and honestly I was fascinated I was listening to them and I was like wow and I I think I was listening to about midnight last night as I was sort of wandering around tidying up the kitchen and uh yeah so thank you for thank you for putting in the work for the report (laughs) it's all right I was keeping you updated as I was going
2: through it I was like oh and this (laughs)
1: It was fascinating. No, I loved it. And there was there was another one. Then one of your voice was like nine seconds, and I was like, "Well, what update have I got in nine seconds?" But that I think that was you just saying goodnight. Yeah, I'm, I'm done. Good night. Um, but I need to let you get back to. Hang on, let me remember. Canada, Italy, Chile, and Sweden. Yeah, get
2: that right. Exactly.
1: Wow. Yep. Okay. Okay. See, the jet lag's easing, um, and I'm off to to Rugby World Cup it. But yeah, no, it's been it's been a great few weeks. Tennis continues and um we will be back next week what's happening next week i don't know but we'll be back chatting about everything because there's always something to talk about tennis there is indeed enjoy the rugby no i will do no looking forward to it and um, i'll speak to you soon okay Bye. bye